Good to have my brother home tonight. Amen. Just returned from China and Singapore. And how he did it, I do not know. But I know that I'm tired for him. So I don't know if you can do that vicariously or not. But I'm glad he's here. I'm asking him just to talk to you for a few moments. And I don't if he wants to share with you what he's seen there, what God's done, that's fine. But I believe God has something good. Let's welcome him as he comes right now. Well, it is definitely good to be home. I'm not sure that my body has quite got back into the right time zone, but it is great to be home. There's no place like home. The Lord has been very good to me while I have been traveling. Uh, My trip to China uh, was quite an incredible experience. Um, They told me before I arrived that they had been given permission to have public meetings, which up until this time, they have not been able to do so. And when I got there and they picked me up at the airport, uh, Brother Caleb told me that they had over a 1,000 people signed up to come to the meeting, and the room wouldn't hold but a little over 150. And the place was packed. And uh, we had a, quite an incredible experience. The... Um, People there are so open. Uh, the people who were signed up are not Christians. None of them had ever been in church before. And uh, Brother Caleb told me on the way to the airport as I was leaving, he said, I keep getting texts all the time from different people. Um, the people who sponsored this meeting, I didn't realize until I got there, was focused on the family. And so when I got there, I was the speaker for their um, seminar they had on families. The family unit in China has become very uh, disorganized, and actually there's such chaos there in their families that they're begging people to come. And so they took all of the restrictions off, and so we could talk about anything we chose to talk about. And... Brother Caleb told me when I got when I was on the way to the airport that there were over eight couples that had already come and asked for Bible studies because they want to know what being a Christian was about. And so um, that was in the city of Chengdu, and they they kind of work you just a little bit. I started teaching at nine o'clock in the morning. We took a break at noon for an hour and then started back at 1 and went 5 every day. And the day I left Chengdu to go to Sion, I spoke that morning, and then we had less than an hour to get to the airport and catch the plane to Sion to speak. And I got there that night and found out that I had to speak four more hours that night, so... I think I averaged speaking seven times a day for eight days, uh, and my my voice is a little raspy from that experience. I was 
allowed in the city of Chin or uh, Sion to speak at a church that's actually recognized by the government, and they are Pentecostal. They are Jesus' name apostolic Pentecostals that the government has recognized and give them permission to have church. And they have quite a little compound there outside of the city, but the government doesn't want foreigners involved in their church services. It's okay for them to have church, but they don't want foreigners there. So they had this gate they would drive me up to. I was in a van that had real dark windows, and when I'd get there, they'd open the door, and they'd open the other door at the same time, and I had to get inside the building quickly. And uh, we had a great service there. It was an incredible atmosphere of the presence of the Lord. And when, when we finished that last day, um, they began to talk. I don't understand Chinese, and so I, Brother Caleb uh, was sitting beside me, and he's telling me that they want to pray for you and for your family. And so that entire group of people brought a towel or cloth and prayed and anointed it for me to bring home uh, to my wife and to my family. And I am deeply convicted by those incredible people. They go to church at the expense of losing their life. If the government wanted to and found out they were really Christians and worshiping God, they can be executed. And there have been thousands that have been. That doesn't stop them from having church. Their church is in an apartment building on about the 20-something floor. And they keep telling me we can't make a lot of noise so that we cause any kind of, of disruption that people would call the authorities. And they start having church, and I start wondering, please, folks, there's too much noise going on here because it just got louder and louder and louder. And it, But the authorities never showed up. They had incredible services and just was an incredible time. Um, I went from Sion to Singapore and spoke in a church there in the country of Singapore, which is just a little island, but it's actually a nation. And it has become one of the most thriving democracies in the world. I was told that one out of four Singaporeans are millionaires. Their economy has just exploded and there's several great churches there. Uh, one of these churches, the pastor I met in 1999, speaking uh, at their camp meeting in Kuala Lumpur. There was two brothers that were in the university that was coming at that time to uh, the camp meeting, and I got to spend a lot of time with those two brothers. And I kind of lost track of them. I, I had asked a lot of people, where are they at, what's happening, nobody seemed to know. And when I arrived in Singapore and was introduced to the pastor, I realized it was one of these young men. And since 1999, he has uh, finished his education. He has two doctorate degrees, three master's degrees, 
and rights policy for the federal government of the nation of Singapore. He teaches at their university. He has lunch with the prime minister every week in the nation of Singapore. And about six months ago, China sent their top generals to the nation of Singapore to try to find out what has allowed them to become so successful and uh, to change their, go from a third world country to a premier nation. And when they got to Singapore, they uh, met with the prime minister and he said, well, there's a young man that you really need to be interviewing because he is the one who has influenced us and helped us become what we are today. And so they brought him to Brother Bobby Matthews, who is the pastor of that church. And he spent all day talking to the leaders of China. The first question they asked him was, what are we going to do about the house churches that are all over our country that are illegal? He said, well, that's easy. Make them legal. Quit persecuting the Christians. If you want your nation to change, then quit persecuting the Christians and you'll see a great change in your nation. And I don't know if you've read the news recently, but China has started letting several cities have church without their government approving. And they've opened as a result of a one God, Jesus' name, apostolic that has had the ability to influence one of the most powerful nations in the world. He's one of us. You know, God is great. Brother Eldon, I was, I was thinking here tonight, 44 years ago, you and I came to this city. And your grandson kind of reminded me of you. We would have never thought that in 44 years we would be here. The Lord is an incredible God that if we will let him take us on journeys, he can take us to places that we would never imagine in our, in our minds that we could ever be there. I have been invited back to the nation of China. matter of fact, they gave me a yearly invitation to come. Uh, next year, they're wanting to go to Shanghai and then Beijing and several of the other major cities and uh, do the same thing that's happened already the last two years I've gone. And so I want you to pray that the Lord will open those doors. If it's right, it'll happen. If it's not, I don't want to force the door. I do have something I want to share with you tonight that the Lord has really been talking to me about for quite some time. Last summer, when I was in the nation of Brazil, uh, there was a young man came during our split set between our sessions, and we were we had three sessions in the morning, then they had a break, and then a couple more sessions in the afternoon. And this young man came and sat down beside me where we were enjoying some refreshments, and he said, "Brother Hughes, I I have a question to ask you," and I said, "Okay." And he said, I, I'm reading the book of Chronicles, and there are some statements about David and his mother that I don't understand. And 
maybe you can explain them to me. So he asked me what my opinion was, and I said, well, to be perfectly honest with you, I'd never even thought about it. I'd read it, but I never paid attention to it. So so tell you what, I will, uh, I'll go try to find out what I can discover about what's being said. And so that started kind of a little journey that uh, has lasted almost all year. And I started looking at the life of David. And, you know, us Christians and Westerners seem to think we have a monopoly on the Bible and the Old Testament history, and we've got all the facts. So if you read what Christians say about David, they're totally different than what the Jews say about him. Our view of him is completely different than their story. And so I began to, to, to search. What was David's mother's name? Does she have a name? Does anybody know who she is? And all of us Christians say, no, there's no mention. But the Jews will tell you that her name is Netzebeth. And the story of David is quite interesting from a Jewish standpoint. Jesse, according to the Jews, was the chief of the Sanhedrin. He was considered to be one of the most righteous men that ever lived. Matter of fact, the Jews say that Jesse was so righteous that the only reason he died was because of the curse of Adam. If Adam had not fallen, Jesse would have been one of those righteous men that lived forever. But he succumbed to death because of the curse of Adam. But Jesse, because of his position of being the head of the Sanhedrin, had to interpret the law. Somewhere in his time of being on the court there and interpreting the law, someone challenged his right to be a member of the Sanhedrin. And they challenged it because his grandmother was a Moabite. Her name was Ruth. And the Scripture says that the Jews cannot marry Moabites. It is strictly forbidden for a Jew to marry a Moabite. So they challenged his right to actually serve on the Sanhedrin. It caused him a lot of turmoil. And so he he began to question whether or not he had the right. Now, previous chiefs of the Sanhedrin had ruled that that law only referred to the men because it was the men of that nation that would not allow Israel to pass through and that would not give them water or food and cause them great problems. And so it was the men that the law was referring to, not the ladies. And so uh, a lady that was a Moabite didn't fall under the same restrictions as the men did because they were the ones who caused Israel the problem. And so Ruth, when she married Boaz, became a legal Jew, and she became a proselyte. And as a result of her marriage to Boaz, Uh, According to the Jews, the night of her wedding, Obed was conceived, and Boaz died the next day. Now, those that wanted to say that Jesse or that Obed was not accepted would point to the fact that if Obed was 
from God, then his father would not have died the next day. So there's this, this ongoing issue that says you're really not a Jew. And so there came a day in Jesse's life that he decided that uh, he didn't want to cause any more children to come into this world that would be tarnished or have this stigma on them as a result of his own life. And so he put his wife away. He didn't divorce her. He just put her in another part of his home that she lived in, secluded from everyone else but her children. As time went on, Jesse became consumed with wondering or wanting a son that could truly be a Jew. And so he knew that the only way that could happen, if he wasn't really a Jew, became a proselyte himself, and he married a proselyte, then their children would be considered Jewish. And so he tries to convince the servant of Netzebet to become his wife. And so he says to her, I will free you, and I will marry you, and children born to us then will be pure Jews. And if they're not, then uh, there's not an issue with it because neither one of us would be. And so he, it, his argument or his reasoning allowed him to do this and convince himself that it was okay. Well, the servant goes to Netzebet and tells Netzebet that this is what Jesse desires to do. And so the two of them agree that his wife will switch places with her that night and that the servant will not go into Jesse, that will be that Zebet, his wife. And so she does. And David is conceived. Months go by, and they begin to realize that she is now with child, and those seven boys desire to have her put away or actually to desire her to be stoned because that's what the law said. She has committed adultery, so she must be stoned. Jesse says, no, that wouldn't be right in the eyes of the law because we don't know who the man is, and so that's, that's not a possibility. But here's what we're going to do. When the child is born, he will be treated as an outcast all his life. He will not be allowed to participate in anything the family participates in, he will not be allowed to be part of the family. We're going to treat him worse than a servant. He'll take his meals in the corner. He'll be treated with total disrespect all his life. And so the child is born. And that's exactly what happened to him. If you read the 69th Psalm, you'll discover in detail this story as David explains what happened to him. He said, I was, I was the song of drunkards. Those in the gates made fun of me and sang about me. And I not only was the song of drunkards, but any time someone stole something in the city, I was forced to pay for it when I hadn't stole anything. So I had to become the one that paid for things that I didn't steal. And I had to live my life in this fashion that, that I, was, I, I was considered worthless. I was no good. I was a nobody. And that's why he would pin I was born in sin and shaping in iniquity. He, because to him, he was taught he was illegitimate. He was not a true son. And so as 
he grows and he gets old enough to take care of the animals and the sheep, the family would send him to places they knew lions and bears roamed, hoping an animal would kill him to take the stigma and the reproach away from the family name. So he's sent to these places that everybody knows the wild animals are there and his life is in danger. But he discovered a way to take care of all. He, he discovered that no matter how bad life was, if he could just connect to God, everybody else might be against him. But if he and his heart could start singing about God and talking to God and, and connecting to God, it didn't matter what anything else happened in life because just he and God, God was all he had. There was nothing else for him, to, no place else for him to go or no one to turn to. He was alone. So in lonely, he didn't let the junk drive him to where he was bitter or resentful or, or angry at anyone else. He just turned to God. And his mother would tell him, son, they just don't understand who you are. If they just knew who you were, they wouldn't treat you like this. They just don't understand who you are. So this child learns to defend himself, and he learns that his strength is from God, that when life doesn't do the things you want and you don't get what you want in life, that's not an opportunity to become sour and mean and hateful and spiteful. You better learn how to turn to God because he's the only source that can help us get past the junk in our life. So... David grows. There came a day when Samuel showed up to anoint a king. They had no clue what he was there for. And so when Samuel arrives, the Sanhedrin is wondering, has he come to pass judgment? Why is he here? The elders of the city are wondering, are you, have you come here in peace? Why are you here, Samuel? He said, well, I just come to offer sacrifice with you and to make some consecrations. And so he says to Jesse, bring your children which shouldn't have happened. But you need to bring your children to be part of this celebration. And so Jesse brings his children. Samuel is re ready to anoint a king. And so he takes his horn of oil out to anoint a king. And he, he looks at the one he thinks should be the one God wants. And that's the oldest. But the problem with the oldest is he's got a temper that would destroy anybody's life. And so he's not worthy to be king. And God said, you look at the outside. I look at the inside. Don't, don't look at, you're, you're looking at the wrong thing. So Samuel goes through all seven, and no, there's these, these, none of these are the right ones. And he finally says to Jesse, are there any other? And at that point, they were convinced that now he had come for the real reason to, expo to expose all of this to the world and let the world know about all the junk in their life. And Jesse says, yes, there's, there's another lad. He didn't call him a son. There's another lad. He's in the field. And Samuel said, go get him. And so they have to go find David. That's, that takes hours for them to find him. Not only does it take hours for them to find him, it takes time for him to get back home. And when he comes home, he's told that he needs to go to be with Samuel. And so he goes home. 
clean, to change clothes and to, to, to bathe so that he would, would, would be presentable. And when he walks in the house and his mother wants to know, why are you here early? What, what, why are you not with the sheep? And he said, well, I've been summoned because Samuel is here. And that Zebit tells David, no, you're not going alone. I'm going with you. And so she went with David to where Samuel was at with all the elders of the city. And when David walked into their presence, God said, arise and anoint a king. Samuel stood with a horn of oil and began to pour it on David's head. According to the Jewish history, as he began to pour that horn of oil out, it would never run empty. He could not empty the horn. It just kept flowing out. And as the oil landed on his head, it began to glisten and harden as if it was gold, that he was literally being crowned by oil that was being poured upon his head. The sound of a mother weeping can be heard outside the door as a mother understands finally, finally she's vindicated. Finally, someone understands what's really going on in everybody's life. Now, they didn't understand he's being anointed king. They thought that he's been anointed to fulfill or to fill the shoes of Samuel, the old prophet, as he's getting on in years and about to die. So they are con convinced that he's now going to follow Samuel and he will be the next Samuel. They understood his connection to God because he sang about him all the time. He had written such beautiful songs. By the time that this takes place, there's a strong possibility that the 23rd Psalm had been written by David. So here's a child who has no one to protect him, no one who cares for him, no one looking out for his own good that discovers the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't have nobody to love me. Dad thinks I'm worthless and treats me as if I'm an outcast. My brothers hate me. I'm despised by my own children. I'm a stranger at my own home. That's what the 69th Psalm said. Why? Because people don't know how to trust one another. Because people's words and slander would cause Jesse to make decisions. But no matter how bad it got, it didn't cause this kid, 12, 14 years of age at this time, those six, seven, eight years of age, the peers, according to Jewish history, they started sending him out in the field with the sheep somewhere around seven or eight so they take this child and expose him to all the wild animals, hoping that he would be destroyed. When I read that story and I listened to people's gripes and complaints and people whine about how bad their life is, I wonder what's really wrong with us. We live in the greatest nation in the world. We have the greatest 
possibilities of becoming anything we choose. We have the greatest opportunity to do anything we choose, but we get trapped in little bitty things that are, that, that are so minor and, and so immaterial that we get bogged down in all this junk. But yet here's a kid that discovered he will hide me in the cleft of the rock. He is my strong tower that I run into. He is my shelter in the time of storm. He, he, he is my comfort when I am in trouble. And he also learned at a young age that God didn't get mad at him when he hollered at him. Every time you read the psalm where it says, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness, or heal me, those are all screams. They're not casual words. He's screaming at God. God, I need you right now. Pay attention to me. He discovered God didn't get angry at him when he would say things to him in his anger and his frustration. God is not as fragile as we often make him out to be. We act like God gets his feelings hurt when we don't do things he don't want us to do. And God's not fragile. Matter of fact, God understands that if he doesn't give you the right to express yourself, in any form or way you need to express yourself that you can never heal from all the junk you harbor in your heart. But if you can say it and confess it, he can heal it. As long as it's not said, he can't heal it. But the moment you can say it and confess it, you open the door for healing in your life. There's so much of a parallel between the life of David and the life of Christ and, and, and the mother of David and the mother of Christ, it, it's such an incredible parallel that already happened 2,000 years before, or 1,400 years before Jesus came. But yet a little kid, a young man, wouldn't get bitter about life. If anybody had a right to be bitter, to be set in a corner and, and, and treated as illegitimate, with no respect, no love. Every time something goes wrong, it's your fault. You did it. See, our world has made us all a bunch of selfish, self-centered, spoiled brats. We don't have to accept responsibility for nothing. It's never our fault or our problem. There's always reasons why everybody else, why this is happening. And, and so we, we blame everyone and it's everybody else's problem instead of saying, you know, I can either let my world make me bitter or better. And choice is mine. What defines that choice? How close I get to God. If I get close enough to God, then the world doesn't matter. If I get close enough to Him, all the problems go away. Because I don't think about the problems. I don't see the problems anymore. All I see is him. See, I don't, I don't have to sneak into church and, and have someone pull up to a door and open it so I can get in so that I can come to church. We don't have to do that. We have the greatest freedom in all the world, the greatest privileges in all the world. But yet it's difficult for us to even show up and put a smile on our face and Enjoy the presence of the Lord. Why? Because we've let the world affect the way we see God. And we blame Him 
for our problems instead of understanding that he's the source that's going to change my world and my life. So he's the one who's going to help me become a different person. I'm not. I can't do it by myself, but he can. He has the power to help change my life if I will invite him in and allow him to help me change. He won't do it for me. He won't make me. But if I choose to, there's nothing I can't do. There's no place I can't go if I just open my life and let God direct. Bitter or better? It's only three little slash marks that makes the difference. Bitter or better? We either let life cause us to get angry, frustrated, or we discover the greatest source in all the world. The difference in the Apostle Paul and others is that Paul discovered that source of life is in God. It's in Him that I move and have my being. It's, it's in Him. Beaten five times with stripes, shipwrecked, stoned. All these things happen, but in making bitter. I had the privilege back in May of standing in ancient Ephesus and walking down that marble granite road that leads to where the seaport was where Paul got off the ship in Ephesus and found John's disciples and asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? I stood in the arena where, because of the, the incredible impact of that church on the city, the city was beginning to think that uh, they're going to lose their influence and, and they're going to they're become Christians. And so 80-plus thousand of them gathered in an arena and for two hours shouted, Great is Demetrius. Great is Demetrius. For two hours, because they were convinced that they're going to lose all this. And they did. By 125 A.D., Ephesus was a totally Christian town. And the Christians controlled the government and all the elected positions because they had changed their world. We have that same ability today. We, have the, we can't if we get stuck looking at what junk life has created. But if we can get past the junk and discover that, you know what, no matter how bad it gets, I'm going to look into the hills from which cometh my strength. I'm going to lift my eyes. Why? Because my help doesn't come from here, it comes from there. When I, when I discover, no matter what life throws at me, no matter how bad it is, there's just none like Him. If I can fall in love with Him, and to the Colossians, He said that we're hid with Christ in God. Hid. Hid. That's, that's a term for marriage. That's, how the, that's the ending of their marriage ceremony. When the husband and wife had been officially united, and they're now husband and wife, she would step up close to her husband. He'd open his robe up and wrap his robe around her so that she disappears. She's now hid. So when the world tried to find her, they couldn't find her. They found him. 
So if I get close enough to Jesus, when, the, when, when Satan tries to find me, he can't even locate me. Because when he starts looking for me, he's not going to find me. He's going to see him because I got close enough that he could wrap his robe around me. Would you worship him for a moment?